Well, hello, Partnerscapes podcast listeners. Welcome to our latest episode. We've got a special treat today. We have a, a pair of folks that are going to be visiting on the podcast. Brendan Woodall is a biologist with the Partners for Fish and Wildlife program of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Wisconsin. And Brendan is going to be hearing a little bit of a story from Asenath LaRue, landowner also from Wisconsin. So Brendan, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Thanks, uh, Partners Gates, for allowing uh, us to use your guys' platform for this podcast to, to tell this unique story that's coming out of uh, central Wisconsin here. Um, so with that, I appreciate you guys for allowing us. Um, and then also a uh, special guest on here today, Athena. Um, she is one of my private landowners that uh, I had the privilege of working with this past year. And so from here, uh, I want to introduce her and uh, why don't we just start with uh, you telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, good morning, uh, Brendan and Steve. And uh, let me just say how much I appreciate the chance to um, talk a little bit about our place and, and the program help we've gotten. And um, uh, I uh, was born and raised in the Midwest. I, I grew up on a series of small farms in Iowa, but my adult work life took me out west and I lived for decades, mainly in California uh, and also some in New Mexico and Colorado before uh, uh, coming back to the Midwest here in the spring of uh, 2018. At the moment, my husband and I are living on a, a 25 acre property, a pretty small property in the driftless region of Wisconsin. It's in uh, the Southern portion of Sauk County. And um, I would say that pretty much all of my adult life, I've been interested in the idea of uh, doing some kind of land work uh, to support native habitats. And really, I just found myself recently in the last few years since coming back here um, with time to devote to this. Uh, that one of the pleasures of retirement is the ability to indulge uh, some of those other passions, in this case, um, habitat restoration or, or preservation. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, so we'll just start with some some questions I have for you. So, you know, how did you know where did you start? Um, you know, that's one of the common themes for for landowners is, you know, what's the origin of these conversations that you had? Um, how did you even know you had the habitat to be improved on your land? You know, that that is a good question. Uh, when I would look around, um, I, I couldn't help but notice a, a couple of things. Uh, we had just a, a, a small number of, of flat, low-lying uh, acres, and it looked to me like these were old fallow farm fields, and 
of course, they're full of, you know, introduced grasses, cool season grasses, lots of weeds. Uh, you know, that was a little discouraging. And then on uh, much of our, our property is steep slopes, wooded slopes, and then ridge top. And the slopes and the ridge top uh, did have some gorgeous uh, oaks, really beautiful, especially bur oaks, but, you know, really thick with all of the usual woody invasives. And, you know, I, I, I knew I wanted to do something, but was having a lot of trouble kind of knowing where to start. And in 2019, I, I went through uh, a short training for the Master Naturalist program. And I began to talk to some people there who had been doing uh, savanna and prairie restoration about how they got started, what's involved, who I could get some help with. And so, so I would say that was kind of a first um, boost for stopping thinking about it and beginning to, to take some action. Um, among the, the companies that, that can help landowners that work in our area that were recommended to me at the time was the Quercus uh, Land Services uh, Group uh, based kind of out of the, the Black Earth area. They seem to be the closest to our area uh, to maybe be able to help. And so I reached out to them to come visit our place and began to help me figure out how to get started on this. Uh, so uh, what I did was to first focus on the few flat acres, that old farm field and habitat. And in late 2019, we began to, through Quercus's help, began to do some work on that. Uh, and you know that's a little bit tough going when you've got the fallow field situation, but but we did get started on that uh, in that year. But in the meantime, that whole first year we lived here, I so enjoyed walking out on the ridge top. You know our home is located there, but then the ridge extends in a couple of directions uh, from our our house site. And it was just wonderful to walk out there under the big oaks. And when I went to the far point in particular, I noticed that there were some open spaces slanted into what I think is the Southeast. And on those open spots, there were some grasses. And I don't know all that much about native grasses, I'm learning, but I did recognize things like Indian grass and little blue stem. And then I started looking a little more closely and, and gosh, I think that's lead plant and a lot of it. And finally it occurred to me that this was a, a little remnant ridge prairie. And I was so excited about that. Uh, uh, so I asked um, Brittany from Quercus to come and take a look at that with me too. And, she was pretty excited as well to, to find a really two or three spots of, of remnant ridge prairie uh, on our place. And we began to develop a plan to work with that uh, and got started 
I mean, as usual, the, the plan would be to, to work on the invasive shrubby stuff, uh, lots and lots of honeysuckle and a lot of buckthorn. Um, and they got started on that in uh, late in 2020, uh, doing um, cutting and stump treatment on that. And uh, then we further developed uh, a plan to begin to thin trees to allow those uh, wonderful oaks to uh, have their best chance of continuing and, and reseeding. So we kind of had a plan in place. And again, it continued to feel overwhelming to me because even though we have a small property, there's just a lot of junk. <laughs> and at our age and stage in life, we, we knew we needed help because we just don't have enough years left and we don't have enough muscle uh, to be able to do this uh, completely on our own. And uh, a second boost I got in not being discouraged was um, by meeting uh, Britta Peterson, who's a biologist with the um, the farm program uh, works out of uh, the Richland Centerland office. And I had had the opportunity to attend a uh, women caring for the land workshop in September of 2021 that Britta had, had organized. And this was one of the best such things I've ever attended. There were maybe 15 women attending who had land, and some of us were in early stages of restoration. Some had been doing it for 30 years. Some were only thinking about doing it. But it was just a terrific opportunity to, to listen to how other people were thinking this through. And then Britta was able to talk about the resources, uh, her job and the resources she had access to. And there were a number of other representatives from the farm program and so forth. So it was just a tremendous um, uh, encouraging uh, enterprise. Uh, and from that, uh, I strengthened my contact with Britta who came out and was able to walk our property with us and brainstorm with me about um, programs that might be available federally or statewide to help us continue with this kind of work. And, and that's where you came in, uh, Brendan. Um, Brenna did not feel that our place being as small as it was, was a particularly good fit for the managed forest program but she did think that the partner for fish and wildlife program um, where, where you're working might, might be a fit. And I'm pretty sure if I remember right, Brendan, she forwarded information about us and our situation to you. And that's, that's how we got uh, in touch. Uh, and yeah. I must say that your help, yeah, have, having you come out, uh, Britta come out, and then Brittany Pierpont from Quercus. Uh, each of you have helped me tremendously to not feel discouraged about 
moving forward with what we're trying to do here uh, on our place. Yeah, you bet. You know, and I, I think it just it really paints a nice story, you know, just how the partnership in Wisconsin between conservation organizations, uh, the relationship that's established there to, to help landowners, you know, if it doesn't work for one program, you know, they know uh, another program that maybe can assist you like in, in your case. And then, you know, just uh, to reiterate too, you know, so you, you started this project um, before you even got any any financial or even technical assistance from any conservation organization. So you were already paying for a lot of this work out of your own pocket, you know, and, and wanting to do the right thing, which is, which is great. Yeah, so, and Brendan, you would ask me to talk a little bit, you know, beginning to learn about the different tools that can be used to help with, in our case, it would be oak savanna restoration up here on, on the ridge. Uh, uh, and, and of course, there's cutting and treating and, and so forth. Uh, and then also, uh, many times the use of fire is recommended. And you asked me to talk a little bit about my history, our history with fire uh, and, and why this might pose a concern for us. And would this be a good point for me to mention that? Yeah, I think so. So, you know, originally when you uh, told us a little bit about yourself, um, you know, you, you grew up in the Midwest and then uh, you and your husband moved out to uh, the West Coast uh the state of california can you describe kind of what what happened out there well a few years back we were we were living in northern california sonoma county and we had a small rural property there in an oak woodland um beautiful you know kind of like the old oak woodlands we have here uh and this happened to be uh, at the October in 2017. And this is in that part of the world at the end of a very long dry period, which is normal out there. It was a six months without any kind of rain or other moisture. So super, super dry, uh, but nearing the end of the dry season. And I think it was October 9th and I woke up just after midnight and there was a very strong smell of smoke. And my first thought as a person would think is that the house is on fire. And as I'm scrambling to find some shoes and get out of bed, it occurred to me that the smoke alarms aren't going off. So maybe it's not the house. And I stepped outside and the entire sky was this intense orange red and the wind seemed to be coming from everywhere and it it wasn't just ash that was coming down there were chunks of things falling from the sky being blown around and i, I would say worst of all oh 
two, three hundred feet up the ridge from us, where there were several properties, developed properties, you could hear explosion after explosion that had to be either cars exploding or propane tanks. And so it was very close. And I knew I had to move really fast. And uh, we had eight elderly rescue cats at the time and some chickens and two donkeys. And so it's not just me who has to leave. And I managed somehow to get all the cats and the chickens in cages and got them in the back of Art's pickup. But then, what am I going to do with the donkeys? Um, Art was happened to be traveling at the time, so I was home alone. And although I could get the pickup over to our horse trailer on the other side of the property, under the circumstances I was working, there was no way I could hook that trailer up by myself to the pickup. And I had this sick feeling that I was going to have to drive away and, and leave the donkeys. And that, I just can't tell you, was a, just a terribly hard thing to do. And, and people who go through these experiences will, will all tell you that. Um, one of the donkeys had been with us for over 20 years since she was a little pumpkin. And uh, it was just really difficult to, to realize if I was gonna save anybody's life here, I was gonna have to drive away. And so I did. And to make a long story short, I, I spent um, hours at a, uh, at a fire station evacuation center, eventually made it to a friend's house in another part of the county that night no sleep, of course. Next morning, I am, you know, just crazed with the feeling that I have to get back there to see about the donkeys. And we began a kind of long, circuitous drive, trying to avoid roadblocks to get back to our place. Um, there's a lot of fire, a lot of fire around. Um, and finally, we're within about, we're at an intersection about a half mile from our driveway. Things are burning, but not everything's burning. And there's a final roadblock. And I thought, oh, this is it. You know, we are not going to get past this roadblock. I get out and I talk to the police who are manning the roadblock and tell them the story, tell them how close our place is. And to my grateful surprise, they not only agreed to let us through, they accompanied us. So three of the policemen came, drove to our place with us, and I'm going up the driveway and everything's burned. The house is gone, the small outbuildings are gone, the barn is gone, except for one wall was still standing. And I'm trying to get myself together to go find the donkey's bodies. Um, and so I'm, I'm just about to get out of the car and out from behind that one wall, standing wall of the barn came a shaggy head. And then came the other shaggy head and I realized the burrows had made, the donkeys had made it. And I was overjoyed, overjoyed and Somehow that made the whole rest of the experience tolerable.
um, and we were able to get them, the donkeys, to the county fairgrounds evacuation center and then began to work on a new plan for our life. So, so anyway, um, throughout the whole thing and for days afterwards, the entire region was blanketed uh, in this dense, dense, dense smoke. Uh, and that left a huge impression uh, on my mind about just not only the fire experience, but um, the dense protracted smoke that a huge wildfire like that will, will leave in an area. Um, but anyway, it was that fire that was a very personal intense experience and it's that fire that motivated us to come back here in the greener midwest where it does rain more often yeah and, and that's for sure and i think we're experiencing that now but you know i appreciate you sharing that that story with us and you know, I could only imagine how much energy that takes to, to relive that experience. And, you know, being a, being a wildland firefighter myself, I could only imagine, you know, the, the heartfelt that went through that night and even the weeks and years after that. And, you know, I even know when, when we were meeting on the site and uh, I think Britta even made me aware, the farm bill biologist, she made me aware. She said, "Hey, you know, if they went through this this tragedy and uh, in the past, and you know, I already had in my mind that fire is not going to be used on your site uh, for your project. Um, and you know, it was just something something that we had to to work through. Um, and you already alluded." Uh, to, you know, the management that you've been doing on the property from, you know, invasive shrub removal, the honeysuckle, the buckthorn, uh, cutting the stumps, treating the stumps with herbicide, following up, um, you know, removing more, more eastern red cedars to open up those bluffs, uh, piling and burning those, um, you know, so where, you know, my question just leads to, um, you know, what, what are you doing today on, on your project and what have you just done here recently, uh, which just kind of creates the story even more so from the experience that you went through and then now what you're doing? Yeah, yeah, we, we, you know, we've been following, I think, a pretty typical progression to try to, um, Try to try to work on these remnant prairies and and to just uh, foster more of an oak savanna um, uh, habitat up here on the ridge. And um, you know, I I'm glad that you mentioned that what we've been doing is cutting, treating, and burning um, the 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 slash and and even some of the tree trunks in addition to the woody shrubs. And I know on larger properties that that just may be cost prohibitive to take the extra time to to burn, but um, because we don't have a huge acreage, uh, and I wanted to be able to easily walk uh, up here on the ridge in in the areas we're working on, 
you know, for us, it's made sense to, to make the extra investment to do the burn piles. And I will tell you, I was even anxious about the burn piles with snow cover. Um, pretty much everything related to burning made me anxious, but, but that did work well. And we've, we've done that two winters in a row here. Uh, but the big step was really um, late in March of this year, uh, I agreed to have them do um, a small burn on the, um, the remnant prairie slopes up here on the ridge. Um, and we did that the end of March and it was a perfect day for it. It was just one of those days where we'd been without rain for a few days. So those sunny spots were pretty dry and there was almost no wind. And they had that, that section, not a huge section, burned in really just no time at all. And I was very, very happy with uh, how that went. And that was a big step forward for us because um, I would say that, uh, you know, burning for us, making the decision to do that, it was a pretty tough sell for us <laughs> to do that. But, but it went very, very well. And of course, over time, you develop um, a sense of trust and confidence in whatever partners you're working with and that they do know what they're doing and that um, having safety as a priority is as important to them, um, them as it is to us. So, so I suspect that we will do more burning here uh, when we come to next spring again up here on the ridge. Yeah, so, you know, it just leads into my, you know, another question, you know, like you make it sound so easy, you know, from, from my end, just, you know, how, how, how did you really overcome, you know, the, to use fire, you and your husband both, you know, from going through that experience out in California, um, you know, how did you guys really overcome that? You know, I'm sure it just brought back some memories uh, from back there and really, you know, gain the confidence of using fire for, for doing this project on your guys' property. Well, I would say one step was that the first burn we did um, was on the low-lying flat acres. And even I could look at that with the perimeters they'd established and we had the driveway and the, the little road in our area on two sides that were natural fire breaks. Um, um, even I thought, well, that's not particularly risky. Uh, and we came through that uh, experience okay. I will tell you that we did remove the donkeys from the property because they were, um, we, we ended up moving these two donkeys all the way out here. Uh, we did remove them from their barn area because that was adjacent to where the work burn was going to be. And I was afraid the fire would bring back bad memories for them. <laughs> who went through a much worse experience with it than I did. So, so we did take that precaution and I will do that again when we have a second burn down there. Uh, but that, it, 
what what um, what the Quercus folks had said to me, and it was true, the the difficulty they had that day, it wasn't that the fire was getting out of control. They were having trouble getting it to burn well enough. Um, you know, that's more low lying and damper. And uh, if anything, it was that the fire wasn't burning well enough uh, in that situation. And that was the point that Brittany and others with that group brought home to me. They said, unless it's unusual drought conditions here uh, and you choose to burn unwisely in those conditions, otherwise things just don't burn here the way they do out west where it's much, much drier overall. Um, so they kept telling me that a lot of times the problem is just managing to get good coverage with the burn rather than things getting out of control. And, you know, I listened to that often enough and watched how that first burn went. Um, and it actually seemed to be true. <laughs> so so that, made, that made a big difference, I think. Um, really just having the time to think about it, um, let your reason override your emotions a bit here, um, realize that different habitats have different risks associated with, with fire, um, and that, that things, we, we are dealing with a different situation here than in Northern California or Colorado, for example. Uh, so, so that just made a huge difference. And I, I guess the other thing is just taking things slow, uh, not doing huge areas uh, with fire management at a time. I think that's also been, been helpful to us. But um, I will say that during any of the burns, the smell of wood burning is no longer a positive thing for me. Uh, normally, <coughs> excuse me, you'd like a, uh, the smell of a fireplace, you'd like the smell of a, a brush pile, and that will probably never be a good smell for me. So um, there is that bit of um, thing that it evokes each time. But, but I think taking it small and letting your reason override an emotional reaction has been very helpful. Yeah, that brings up a good point, you know, just talking about the smell of the fire and, and you know, what that, that changes with your association of, of, of fire in general. Um, I think that would definitely ring home uh, for a lot of people. Can you describe, uh, you know, a little more just out of curiosity about the, the fire, usually out west when a fire is so big? Um, they actually name the fire, and then there's, of course, usually uh, negative correlation of uh, things that happen with those big fires. Can you can you describe what kind of what the name of the fire was, and uh, and what the you know total loss of that fire out there was back back then? Yes. Um... Our particular fire was called the, the Nuns Fire, and it combined with um, another fire that started 
in our community. It was the community of Santa Rosa, California that started the same night. Um, those two fires together burned um, 5,200 homes in a matter of two or three days. So it was, um, the, the impact was huge on the community. You know, that's a lot of displaced people, um, a lot of displaced animals, and, and just a lot of, um, you know, destroyed junk left over in the habitats. Uh, you know, the smoke from those fires, those mega fires, is toxic itself because it's not just wood. It's you know, all the stuff that people have in their houses and their barns and their vehicles burning. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the one problem that comes out west with these huge fires, which are increasingly frequent, is it's not just if it's your community burns, even if your community doesn't burn, the air quality for days or weeks from a big fire can be just another major, uh, major health risk. But I mean, you've been trained in fire management uh, and uh, you just know that those huge fires brought on in part by the warming climate and the warming drying cycle to that plus the lack of, of forage man forest management for decades, the huge fires are just now very, very difficult to manage and control. Um, and I, I just think it presents a, a major challenge to, to really everybody in the West, uh, whether you're a, just a homeowner or, or, or if you're Cal Fire uh, who, who's stuck with uh, trying to handle this each season. So it, it truly is a, just a major, major challenge for that whole Western part of the country, especially with the prolonged current drought. I feel very, very fortunate by contrast to be here. And I suspect you do too. <laughs> Yeah, no, those are all great points. And, you know, right now we're in the midst of our wildfire season here in Wisconsin. And even a lot of uh, local residents here don't aren't even aware uh, that we have a wildfire season. And, and that's what most of the time gets folks in trouble uh, right now is burning debris. Um, so, so all great right. points and, and thanks for sharing that. Um, and so alluding back to that, you know, as a landowner who's went through this experience of, you know, managing habitat, using fire, oak savanna habitat in particular, and then experience this devastation of a wildfire out west, um, can you offer words of advice for new landowners when it comes to, to using prescribed fire uh, on, on their habitat projects? Uh, and then, you know, we'll just finish it up with, uh, you know, if your experience working with government uh, programs, uh, meeting Britta with, you know, the, the Farm Bill program, uh, and then, you know, just any closing thoughts and comments that you might have. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I, again, I so appreciate the, the chance to, uh, to, to tell our, our little bit of story and how we've come to where we are with this. But, but uh, I, you know, I'm still very, very new in this process uh, of trying to help restore a habitat, a, a really, really interesting and, and precious habitat, I think, on, on our place. Uh, and talking to other people who have gone down this road through, um, through groups like the, the Prairie Enthusiasts, uh, it really is enormously helpful to, to do that. Uh, I think all along a person shouldn't be afraid to ask questions. I mean, we aren't born knowing this stuff and, and you gotta ask questions. Uh, and then if you're like us who uh, are tackling this at a later stage in life, you know, to recognize sooner rather than later that you're probably gonna need to hire some help in order to, to make progress and, and to get over whatever inhibitions you have about spending some money on that. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think that's important too. And for us, it's been helpful to just do one chunk at a time, you know, relatively small chunk, and then see what happens with it. Uh, see how that goes. Uh, um, and, and to just take it one section at a time, I think has, is another piece of advice I could give. And that, that's really the way we approach the burn issue. As I mentioned, very probably this coming spring, this next spring, we will be doing some burning under a section of the oaks um, to, to cut down on the leaf litter and other things under there. Uh, and that will make me a bit nervous, but we're not gonna burn the whole ridge at once. I mean, that I'm sure of. So, so taking it uh, one step at a time in a small section until you feel comfortable um, is what I would recommend. Uh, and then I really, again, don't be afraid to reach out for potential funding sources. We, we didn't do that in the beginning. We, we started on our own, but um, everybody can use help, especially to, to sustain you in keeping going with this. And, you know, people like Britta Peterson with the Farm Bill Program and, and you, Brendan, with the, the Fish and Wildlife Partners Program, as I understand it, this is what you're doing with your jobs in part is to help people um, uh, restore habitat. So much of important habitat is in private ownership lands and, and it's just a big boost to, to get more landowners involved. And, and the enthusiasm that you and, and Britta um, feel for your jobs is really contagious and can help a landowner who's beginning to feel a little overwhelmed or maybe this is endless, uh, uh, that it really, really, that enthusiasm plus the expertise is, is so helpful. And, and I guess the final thing I would wanna say is that at least for a person like me, who's been a lifelong nature nut, um, the rewards of trying to make a habitat that's been neglected or overused um, better again. The rewards are just huge. I mean, I just can't wait again for this spring to, to, to go out on those remnant prairies 
and see what comes up, especially after this, this little fire we've had. Um, you know that there are a gazillion interesting things down in that seed bank, just biding their time and hoping for a chance to, to flourish again. And to be able to see that is just really, that's all the reward a person needs, I think. Yeah, and not to mention all the, the birds that are going to be coming back during spring migration here too, right? Right, right. I, I just, uh, I go nowhere without my, uh, my binoculars these days, so. Uh, there you go. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story with us, and uh, I appreciate Steve uh, with Partnerscapes with uh, allowing us to use their platform and also helping us host this podcast. So with that, Steve, if you have anything. Don't have anything to add. Brendan, Asina, thank you so much for the conversation. I'm sure uh, this is going to be a popular one with the listeners and uh, would invite everybody who's listening to this one to check back soon. We are trying to increase the number of uh, these stories that we're sharing during 2022. So thank you both.